Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. So today's scripture in our series about scriptural speed bumps, those pieces of the Bible that slow us down, that sometimes we don't really like being in there. Today's scripture has been used by countless generations now to explain why there are poor people in the world and in their nation and to kind of set aside duty for changing that. Because Jesus said, you will always have poor people. Therefore, we have poor people, just as Jesus said. Instead, we are being challenged to look deeper and find out why Jesus would say something like that. It sounds pretty callous that Jesus expects there to always be poor people as if God wants some people to be poor. But when we look at the scripture today, we'll find that it sits well within a larger context that makes much more sense. In fact, if we go back to the beginning of chapter 26, we'll find out that Jesus has been teaching his apostles and he recognizes that it's only two days until the Passover, which means that he is truly on short time. And he says to them that the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. And he leaves them bewildered with this. They're not ready to hear that truth. They don't want to think that he is going to suffer and die, much less leave them. And so the scriptures go on to say in the next couple of verses that already the chief priests and the elders of the people had been gathering together and they were conspiring to arrest Jesus. But they're intimidated by his power and his charisma and the crowds that follow him. And so they're thinking that maybe they should wait until after the Passover when things and the activity in Jerusalem kind of dies down a little bit. And then the story continues to the context in which we read today's verse. It says, Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. So Bethany is a little bedroom community, much like Crozet, outside of Jerusalem. And so there on the outskirts of Jerusalem, Jesus and his apostles are in the house of a man who is known for his disease. Simon the leper, he's known for his uncleanliness. And the high priests and the elders of Israel would never find themselves in Simon's house because he is ritually impure. And therefore, he is ritually contaminating anybody and everything that touches him or his abode. And yet here is Jesus, the one who is the Messiah and the Son of God, not only in his house, in close proximity to him, but apparently enjoying his hospitality. And there, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment, We don't have to guess how expensive this gift is that she brings. The scripture is very clear. It is not just costly, but very costly, very costly ointment. And she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. In the midst of this hospitality, in comes a woman with no name and no face and no ties, except for her act of taking this expensive oil and pouring it over Jesus. And but it says, but, and you know, all good things start with but, but when the disciples saw it, they were angry and said, why this waste? For this ointment could have been sold for a large sum and the money given to the poor. They're outraged over what she did. Why would you waste something like that? 
And we try to wrestle with this. I mean, I think our first response is, they're angry and they're already complaining because nobody today gets angry and complains. And so they're angry and they're complaining. And sometimes I think our default is to stand with Jesus and not try to think about what the apostles were going through. Here are apostles who have been traveling around with Jesus for three long years of hard ministerial work. And four specific times in the gospel account of Matthew alone, Jesus makes a big deal about the poor and how his followers should help the poor, that they need to be at work in ministry for people who are poor. And so when we see this extravagance poured out on Jesus, they are rightfully starting to question this. Why are we doing this? You spent all this time telling us it is in Matthew that we get the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor. So why are we using this gift in this way? Is this the best way? Right? It's about stewardship. Is this how we should be using the gifts that we have in order to best serve the kingdom? And as they're calling this question, we get another but. But Jesus, aware of this, he's very aware of their critique, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? She has performed a good service for me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. By pouring this ointment on my body, she has prepared me for burial. Very truly, I tell you, wherever this good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. So Jesus defends her actions. In fact, he not only defends her actions, but then he kind of raises her up as, as an epitome, as a paragon for how you should handle this. It is right after this moment that the text says that Judas Iscariot will go to betray him. Right after this seemingly contentious declaration of Jesus, one of the twelve will abandon him. Is it possible that this is the moment that he thinks Jesus has become hypocritical? Is this the moment when he thinks all this time you have been telling us this and now this? They are not united. They don't seem to be compatible. And in that moment, he goes and he betrays Jesus to those who have been plotting to arrest him. But there's something very important here. Jesus proclaims that by pouring the ointment on his body that she has prepared him for burial. And all the gospel accounts, all four of them, only in Matthew do the women not show up to the tomb on Easter Sunday to anoint his body. Only in Matthew. In the other gospel accounts, it says that one or more of them show up with oil and spices to prepare his body for permanent entombment. Because the, of the Passover feast, he was quickly removed and shoved into the tomb, but he was not properly prepared for permanent entombment. And so they come to honor him in this way. But in Matthew, they do not. In Matthew, they come up simply to visit the tomb and to watch. They don't have to prepare his body, for this woman has already done it, according to this gospel. That this is an act showing that he will be cared for, that he is loved and heard, and that there are those who respect that he shall die for them. And we're often left wondering about how Jesus felt going into this. Yes, we have the garden depicted in our picture over here in our stained glass window. Yes, we understand that at some point Jesus knelt down and in earnest, deep, gut-wrenching prayer, he prayed that the cup might pass from him. 
but still committed that if this is what God the Father wanted, God the Son will go forward. Yet, he will kneel in the garden, having already been abandoned. Some of his apostles will have already left him. Others will have fallen asleep, unable to stay awake with him for the short amount of time before he is arrested. And another one will have permanently betrayed him. And yet in the garden alone, he will be able to look back and remember that there was one who believed in him, even though he would go to die for all of us, that there was one who was willing to hear him and honor that gift and his death. But the apostles, they don't understand this. They're still wrestling. And it's too easy as modern Americans, most of us somewhere within middle class range, to sit here and project that onto the apostles. We tend to think of them as us, as we are. However, these were poor men. They were poor to begin with, most of them. It's not that catching fish on the Lake of Galilee was that glamorous back then. You worked all day, sweating, smelling of fish, and then you had to get everything ready to do it all over again the next day. And there was no wonderful thing where all the kids went to trade school and said, I want to grow up to be a fisherman. That's not how that happened. It was a trade that was passed down from father to son, which is how James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were fishermen. And a lot of the other apostles left anything that they had in order to follow Jesus. And they wandered around with him in this nomadic existence, itinerant ministers, if you will, walking around all of Israel following Jesus. They didn't have a home. It's not like they could get into, you know, a Starwood Suites with any kind of regularity and wash their clothes and their bodies. They were filthy. They were dirty. Their shoes and their clothes were encrusted with the dust of the earth. They were eating only when people would be willing to share with them. Jesus didn't just whip out fishes and loaves all the time for them. Instead, they had to live off the generosity and the hospitality of those who heard the message and were willing to engage it a little longer. Come to my house and you can find rest. But if there was no rest, they found themselves sleeping outside under the elements and at the risk of their own safety. The Garden of Gethsemane was the public park of the day. He went out to the Garden of Gethsemane not because it looked like a beautiful place to frame a picture for church windows. He went out to the Garden of Gethsemane because that's where they were sleeping. That's how Judas knew where to find him, because they were camped out in a public park. And that's where they were living. All of their loss of status when they started following Jesus resulted in them actually lowering their economic status. And so they were the poor. They were poor people. And when Jesus says to them, you will always have the poor with you, and you yourselves are poor, you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Is Jesus truly saying to all of Christendom, hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of years later, in continents that none of these people can fathom, it's okay not to change institutionalized poverty because I recognize that there will always be poor people think that's how Jesus operates. And yet we wrestle with this text because there are people who will say, and I'm sure you heard it, people choose to be poor. They need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. They need to work hard like 
our forefathers did in order to raise themselves up and triumph over economic despair. And yet Jesus was poor. Jesus was a homeless, poor man walking all around. And we seem to not mesh those two concepts together. And so people use this text to simply discount mission and ministry with people who are impoverished. And yet here we are with this text. What do we do with it? I can remember talking about this text with some adults, and my son happened to be around. And you have to be very careful about that because kids are listening. And he didn't say anything while we were there. But then later on, he said, why does Jesus think it's okay for there to be poor people? Why does Jesus say that you're always going to have poor people with you? Now, I mean, I could get, you know, philosophical with him and go, well, that's because human sin will always make it so that there are poor people. But that doesn't sound right to him either. Jesus seems to be saying that there's always going to be poor people. And there are people who will always be poor because of their choice. Just like there are always going to be some people who don't choose to do something that the rest of society does. Does that mean then that anybody who finds themselves in that same category should be shunned and abandoned? Absolutely not. Think about all the ways in which we as human beings, especially in the United States, strive to alleviate suffering for other people. Children were dying from measles and mumps, and so we developed vaccines to save children. When adults and children and youth of all ages are experiencing illness and sickness, do we not give them medicine so that they won't have to just ride it out and suffer? When someone has cancer, do we just say, that's the end? No, we offer them treatment if they want it. We encourage people to seek healing and wholeness, not to simply say, let's see what your body can do with this. Because Jesus said, there are going to be sick people. Instead, we respond with compassion to everything but this. Why? Why are the poor so different? And I had to look at my child and say to him, sometimes in the deepest, darkest recesses of our hearts, we like that there is someone who is poorer than us. We like it because as bad as it feels for us, we can go, well, it could be worse. And we've seen it. We've seen someone else who's lower on that totem pole than we are. Even our poor in this country can look extravagantly rich next to the poor of other countries. But does that mean that their suffering is negated because someone else seems to have it a little worse? Absolutely not. One of the most dangerous theological things the church can ever do is get into a fight over who has a bigger slice of the suffering pie. We're all eating the same poisoned suffering. And if we want to sit around and go, well, my dose is worse than yours, then we are not working to bring healing and wholeness. We are simply working to have somebody a little lower down than we are. And that is not what Jesus came to do. He came to raise us up, to set us free, to allow us to triumph over the things that would divide us and give us permanent sin and death. But there is something inside every human being that we have to wrestle with whether or not we can at least say, I'm not that bad. And so we have these wrestlings. But how often do we as disciples of Jesus Christ seek to engage in a conversation about whether or not we can change 
the system? Can we change the world? We say that we are committed to that. The mission statement of the United Methodist Church, the global United Methodist Church, is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And if we truly believe that we are called here to make disciples so that the world will be changed to look like the kingdom of God, then we have to wrestle with things like poverty. And notice how much we strip people, the poor, of their dignity. We even strip them of their personhood. Now, they're not even poor people anymore. Now it's just poverty. It's a sickness. It's a societal error. We don't even recognize that there are human beings of sacred worth who are suffering because they cannot afford food, shelter, potable water, appropriate clothing. They can't afford to even look at a future with hope because right now is so miserable, dark, and painful. And that, to be co-opted and affirmed by twisting the words of Jesus Christ is a sin. It's a sin to use Jesus to justify the pain of another. Jesus didn't want us to suffer. And one of the most intriguing things to me and many others who have read this text is that Simon the leper, it is never said that he is healed. It doesn't say that Jesus cleanses him or that he has previously been cleansed by Jesus. It's a man who is known because of his state of sickness. And here are apostles who are known because of their state of proximity to Jesus. And they look at a woman, and we don't know if she was poor, we don't know if she's rich, we know nothing about her other than her act of devotion. It's all we know. If we go back just four chapters, we will find that she is actually living out something that Jesus said. The Pharisees have shown up to try to trick Jesus in these verbal debates, and at one point someone says, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of all? And Jesus doesn't hesitate. Love your God with all that you are with your heart and your mind and your spirit. Love God with everything. And he doesn't stop. And the second is this. You will love your neighbor as you love yourself. And the apostles are trying to work that out in practical theology. They're they're looking at this woman who comes in and seemingly wastes this very costly perfume by pouring it all over Jesus. Not in an act of anointing as we are used to thinking of anointing for a sign of God's blessing and commissioning into a ministerial role like that of prophet or priest or king. Instead, she is anointing him for his death. And they're not even ready to think about that. But she does this and they think to themselves, we have been told that we should love others as we love ourselves. We should be working for those who are poor. So this doesn't seem to work, but they have forgotten the first, the greatest of all the commandments. You will love God with all that you are. That is worship. You will love God with all that you are. Every single vow that United Methodists take to join the church, that we will support the church with our prayers, our presence, our gifts, our service, and our witness is fulfilled in worship. And nothing can stop our worship. We can't allow something to keep us from worshiping. We have had a fire alarm. Did it stop us from worshiping? If we had a flood, would it stop us from worshiping? 
We would wear really high shoes, and I would stand on a ladder, and we would worship. We will not stop. Nothing, neither hell nor high water, can stop the worship of our God. That is the difference. And Jesus recognizes that there will come a time where churches struggle over this. Surely, you can try to envision a church where not everybody agrees on how you spend the budget. Surely, you can picture a time where people say, I think we should be spending more money for this mission. And someone says, no, this is more important. And if you look at our annual budget here at Crozet, you'll notice we spend a lot of money on worship. Now, I will defend us by going, there are other denominations that spend much more in worship than we do. However, we do spend a lot in worship. Because Jesus told us that we are to honor and glorify God. It is very important. It was so important that the cost of the ointment did not overshadow the act of devotion. Extreme devotion. That she would come into an unclean man's house with something that was probably equal to her livelihood and pour it out on Jesus just for the sake of honoring he who would die for us. That is an act of incredible worship and devotion. And he not only recognized it and received it, but he heralded her for it. People will remember her wherever they tell the gospel for this act. And instead, Christians all over the world throughout history have co-opted that entire statement to mean we've always got poor people. And some of them choose to be poor, therefore they should all be poor. Instead of saying, it doesn't matter why you are poor, we will work to alleviate your suffering. If you have ever had to make the egregious decision on what utility to pay, you know how humiliating, embarrassing, painful and dark it is to be poor. You know that there is no winning decision. And then when it's not just you, but others of your household and of your livelihood and of your life that you love that are affected by the decisions that you will make upon financial reason, you cease to feel like a child of God. You start to feel as if all of this is hopelessness and darkness. And they might as well turn off the power because you're dwelling in darkness anyway. And who, who will not only hear your plea for help, but who will help to restore your dignity? That is why the church exists. That in the midst of all the pain and the suffering, we do not strip people of their dignity, that sacredness that was endowed at their creation, that is theirs by birthright, we enable people to come and receive anything that they need without questioning their motives, without stopping to see whether or not they are worthy, but instead responding from a grace-filled side. Do you ever notice that when we talk about the Good Samaritan, we never stop to wonder whether or not he was in a bad part of town? Wonder if, you know, he was in an area, maybe he was doing something illicit before he was robbed. God only knows what he was wearing. We don't have these discussions when we talk about the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan is predicated upon 
one trajectory. Someone was hurt, and no one would respond in their time of need. Not the priest, not the Levite wouldn't respond. Are we those people in this day and age when this entire week has been filled with adults screaming and using their words in hate-filled ways? Are we going to continue the system or are we going to decide that we want to be a people who work to change the entire world. Our children are listening and they are watching. They are listening to our words. They are looking to see whether or not we do fulfill the commandments. There are a number of times in our lives of a Christian disciple when you will leave your town and you will leave your church and you will go off in mission and ministry and there are times where you're not in church on the Sunday. Do you stop where you are and worship in fulfillment of the greatest commandment or do you let it slide because you are loving your neighbor as you love yourself? Jesus is telling us that nothing, not our proximity to our home church, not our economic circumstances, not how we feel in the morning, nothing should stop us from worshiping God. And that after we worship God, that will fuel the second commandment helping us to love others as we love ourselves. And then once we do that, we will come back and we will worship again. And the cycle will continue. And I truly believe, and I would put this challenge out to any Christian anywhere, that if you continue to go to worship week after week, that you will see that your fruitfulness and your impact and the transformation that God is able to accomplish through your mission work and your ministry work the rest of the week will increase. And you will find that you have more and more reason to worship the next time you return on the Lord's Day. And that is how we will begin to transform this world. Because if you've been taking note of what's been going on in this country, is this really what we want to leave to our children? Is this the atmosphere at which we want to engage with one another? Is this the way we think that it should be? Then that begins here. It is lived out here, and it is transformed out there. And we come here today for moments such as this, to be reminded that God is here to give us all that we need and to fuel our faith for the journey and for the hard work. Because communion is not a status symbol. It is not about prosperity. It is about God's love. May we encounter that in a radically empowering and transformative way this day together. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.